Alright, hey, what's going on everybody? I am back, and I'm not sure if this is going to be a Jitscast or not. It's probably not going to be. Uh, but I will start off by talking about a little bit of jiu-jitsu stuff, and then we'll get into some other topics. So, I decided to finally start competing again at jiu-jitsu. So I have signed up for a competition coming up in November called the U.S. Open. It's at the Cow Palace in California, San Francisco, California to be specific. Uh, it's my first tournament in over two years. Well, actually, it'll be two years pretty much of the day when I actually get uh, to the tournament. Because the last one I did was the U.S. Open where I got bronze. But I, I would have got at least silver, but I didn't know I was down on uh, advantages. And I could have easily just got a neon belly, but whatever. I had to learn how to pay attention to the points. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to competing. I'm, I'm going down to weight class again. When I first started doing jiu-jitsu, I was... Uh, I competed at 206 and I had to basically cut weight to get to 206 and then I went to 195 for a couple of tournaments and now I'm going to compete at 181 so that's going to be pretty cool because right now I'm walking around between like 173 and about 178 so that'll put me comfortably in the 181 weight class without cutting weight which is nice because I usually have to cut weight and it kind of sucks so I I'm glad that I figured out the uh, the ketogenic diet and uh, intermittent fasting to drop, you know, weight pretty easily and still have energy. So that'll be fun. So that's coming up. The main thing I want to talk about on this podcast is actually about fatherhood because I actually did a podcast or did a recording about fatherhood right around Father's Day and I never released it. So uh, I can't remember why. I got to go back and listen to it, but I didn't release it for for some reason. So I figured I'd bring up the topic again of, of fatherhood, and uh, on Thursdays and Fridays it's usually just me and and Riley. So if you're watching the video, you might be able to see her in the back in the in the mirror. She's in the back seat. So we actually just went to Whole Foods, pick up some food and stuff, and now we're on the way back home. So um, I think I mentioned it a few times on the podcast and various other podcasts that Riley's adopted, and you know we adopted her day one, you know, when she was born, we were the first people besides medical staff to hold her, and it's been really an, an awesome journey so far with her, and I think it's been really cool for me to, to get a basically a second chance at fatherhood later on in life, because uh, my oldest daughter, who's going to turn 15 here pretty soon, she lives with her mother most of the time, and for a long time, that, that really, really bothered me, um, you know, me, me and her mom got a divorce and it was sort of ugly and I was fighting for probably about four years for for custody and then eventually I just decided you know um my oldest daughter seems to be happy where she's at and I don't really want to just keep fighting and stressing myself out and then also stressing you know my oldest daughter out you know with custody and stuff like that so I just decided to you know parent her the best that I can you know, while I do have her, which is, you know, I get her, you know, sort of a lot. I mean, some people say it's a lot, but I, I still don't, I don't think so. Um, I basically get her for every major break. Um, and technically I could probably get her for the, um, the other, I guess, holidays as well. So basically I get her for the whole summer. I get her for Thanksgiving break. I get her for winter break and, uh, spring break. So I still get to see her quite a bit, but it's just not as much as I'd like. And I guess I'll rewind a little bit. Like, when I was a kid, I never really wanted to... I didn't think that kids were really in my future, like, at all. Uh, one of the reasons why is because I already knew, like, when I was... Uh, 
like a mid teenage years that you know I had depression pretty bad and I didn't really want to possibly pass down those genetics or be depressed while trying to raise a child so either one of those scenarios I didn't really want to go through um, but yeah my, my worst fear is that I you know I pass that on to, to somebody else and then you know a kid would have a hard time with with depression but it doesn't really seem to be the case you know we, we had a uh, had my, my oldest daughter, um, she seems to be doing okay, and then, like I said, you know, with, with her, I, I kind of felt like I, I didn't get a, an entire fatherhood experience with her because, you know, like right around age eight or nine is when, you know, me and her mom kind of became distant and became separated, and, you know, those are those are good years to, to have with, with any kid, and I, I, I didn't get that, so... I was, I was bummed out about that for a long time, and then, then I met, you know, K-Mac, and we've been together for about about seven years, and we decided to to adopt, and it's just been a really cool journey. Because to be honest, when I had my oldest uh, daughter, I was I was too young, you know, I was about, I think I was 22 or 20, I think I was 23 years old, and I was just too young and just stupid like most people, you know. I mean, I did the best I could with, uh, you know, raising you know my oldest daughter, but. I think right now I'm just in a much better space, you know, just physically, mentally, everything, to, to raise another child. And it's just been, it's been so much easier now raising, you know, my youngest daughter, Riley, just because I've learned from, you know, mistakes that I've made in the past and just, you know, just looking at things differently and just really focusing on, you know, what, what does, what does Riley need, you know, and having the wisdom of being older to see you know what your child needs is, is super important like I didn't understand the uh, the value of putting children on like a sleep schedule when I was younger and an eating schedule and that was uh that was a huge difference not that you know my oldest daughter was like up all the time or anything but there definitely were a couple of sleepless nights but you know with uh with my youngest you know we, we had her on a sleep and eat schedule pretty much from day one and she's been sticking to it and now she sleeps through the night no problem uh she's been sleeping through the night for like ever since she turned eight months so the past like more than two months she's been sleeping through the night even before that she would only wake up to eat and then she would go right back to sleep so that's been great and just really trying to foster her you know a little personality and you know just giving her what she needs you know emotionally and you know physically and stuff like that you know it's just been really awesome to, to understand that you know we're here to basically you know parents jobs are basically a raise you know, a, a little human to be like a, a, a better than they were, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe in an afterlife or anything like that or resurrection. So, for me, uh, my real immortality comes through my children, and I think, you know, that puts more importance on me to like really show them the right way, um, and to not, you know, abuse them in any sort of way, and just make sure that, you know, I, I've learned from my mistakes, and they also learn from from my mistakes from their mistakes and then if they do make a mistake not to like make it a super negative experience because I know when I was a kid if you know I, I was things were a lot different back then you know we get you know beat all the time and stuff and you know I don't really find a lot of value anymore in, in physically you know abusing children uh, I don't know why I ever did it was just like one of those things that were passed down you know you spank your kids and then or you got spanked so you spank your kids but after a while I didn't really see any any real any real value in that except for there was no real value, you know. I mean, obviously they would they would stop their behavior, but it's it was through like fear, and I don't, I don't, 
it's weird, you know, seeing your, your kids scared of you. And I don't think that's a good thing, like, at all. Because I was, to be honest, I was, you know, scared of, you know, my mom. And uh, it's like, that's a weird relationship when you're actually, like, scared of somebody that's supposed to be taking care of you. And I don't ever want my, my children to, to feel that way. I don't, I don't ever want them to to fear me or anything like that. I just, you know, I, I want to show them love. And then if they have problems, we'll work it out, you know, in a, in a different sort of way. I'm not saying that physical punishment is totally off the table, but, I mean, it's like 95%. I don't feel the need to ever physically, you know, uh, I guess, discipline my, my children, you know. Those are just my thoughts on that. And another thing about being a father now, it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, like I said, on Thursdays and Fridays, it's, it's mainly just you know, me and Riley, and I'm only gone for her, from her on those days for, like, maybe an hour and a half to two hours, because, like, you know, I do, I go work out, do jiu-jitsu, and then, uh, you know, I, I pick her up, like, r right after I'm done, so, and, I, you know, I walk, it's just me and her, and we're walking around a lot, and I, I've been kind of pulled aside a few times by, uh, by women, and they're like, you know, oh, I've never seen, you know, a, a dad, like, you know, alone with their kid, or carrying him in a carrier, because I have this really cool, like, uh, baby carrier thing, it's by uh, Mission Critical, it looks like a bulletproof vest, and it's weird for me to hear that people nowadays don't see fathers, like, taking care of their children on their own. It's like, are you for real? Maybe I just I just don't notice, but uh, fathers take care of their kids, too. Like, like you know, I, I take pride in taking an active role in my child's life. And I don't see why any father wouldn't do that. Like, almost all my friends are, are good fathers, and they take care of their kids on their own, you know? It's like they don't really need help. To, to take care of their kids you know if the worst happened and you know they lost their you know their other parent like they'd be pretty much fine for the most part um obviously it'd be devastating but like they they don't need someone there to uh to raise their kids you know it's like obviously both parents is ideal but if you have to do it by yourself you can do it by yourself um yeah it's just it's, it's really weird to me just to to, to hear that that to hear that fathers they don't see fathers parenting their children so hopefully that'll that'll change and i think it is changing right now anyway i mean i see i found i'm finally seeing stuff like geared towards dads for baby stuff like i said that that baby carrier that i have is is geared towards men which uh, which i like and just like a lot of other baby gear in general like mission critical basically makes all like tactical looking uh baby gear and there's also another company called tactical baby gear i have one of their um uh, baby like diaper bags that's that's pretty dope I use it pretty much on a daily um, yeah and I think it's just it's cool to just I, I like hanging out with my, with my daughter too you know I think that's another important thing like I think she's like a really cool kid so I mean you know, both my kids I think they're really cool but you know obviously my, my oldest is she's older now so she doesn't think I'm as cool but you know my youngest uh, I still see that you know the, the the huge smile on her face when she sees me and the love in her eyes and we're playing and stuff I think that's really cool and it's something that you know I really missed I didn't realize that I missed it until you know I got to see it again it's just like how cool you know little babies think, think you are you know and just like little things that that are just awesome like when they just they want to be held they want to play with play with you and stuff like that and I think that's that's really cool oh and my uh Riley just started walking you know a couple of weeks ago and that's been really cool because we didn't think that because she wasn't uh crawling for the longest time she would only crawl backwards and then one day she figured out how to crawl fours and then she was crawling like a lot and then like a month or maybe even less than a month later actually around a month later she started like uh standing up on her own and then just like walking and now she's like walking super fast so yeah i feel like 
really watch out for walking around. But we have this really cool, like, it's kind of like a fenced-in area in the house where it's dedicated basically for her. And uh, she can't really get over the, the the barriers yet. So she's already trying to, like, figure out how to, like, crawl over it. Or she likes to reach through it and, and pet our dog, Scrappy. It's, it's super cute. Uh, and that's, that's really cool. And then, like, she's trying to, like, climb it already. Like, trying to figure out how to get higher elevations and now she's trying to like stick her feet in little holes to like climb over i think it's really cool to watch babies like figure stuff out you know because i mean obviously you know as an adult when we got it all figured out like walking is just a series of well-controlled falls but for children that it's treacherous treacherous so <laughs> watching them figure it out is uh it's, it's pretty neat and then just the way that like they'll interact with with stuff like we have these little like uh, we have this one toy where you like have to do certain things to like pop up the the little heads and she never likes that thing open. She's like super OCD about it. Like I'll open all the heads up and she'll automatically just start putting them, putting them all back down. Or we have like this little like hoop holder thing. And then if you put all the hoops on there, she'll immediately go, she'll stop whatever she's doing, go over there and take them all off again. You know, I think it's funny how she, she likes things a certain way already. And her little personality is, is shining already, even though she's only 10 months old. So that's been, it's been pretty neat. And I've just been really enjoying, enjoying that part of, of, of fatherhood. And also, like, I'm trying to learn how to do her hair and stuff because it's been a long time since I had to do, you know, baby's hairs, baby hair at, at all. You know, with uh, with Lily, it was a little bit easier because uh, that's my oldest daughter's name. She's Lily. Um, she has uh, straighter hair. With Riley, she has, you know, way more curly hair. And it's just been, it's been interesting to figure out how to, like, do her hair. So, and eventually I got to remember how to do braids again because for me, it's super hard to do, but... I gotta have somebody show me how to do it, <laughs> like, or maybe watch a YouTube video or something, figure it out. But yeah. Uh, other stuff that's been going on uh, recently here in California is that we had some really bad fires going on. I don't know if you you can see in this video, but uh, it's pretty wide screen on the video, so you should be able to see outside the car. Uh, it's super hazy outside. That's because of the fires up in up near Napa and uh, in Sonoma. So they've had like I heard it was something like 17 fires happened basically overnight. And they've had to evacuate like tens of thousands of people from that area. And there's a whole bunch of like wineries in Napa that have burned down. There's a, a fire station burned down. I was like, man, you know, it's a serious fire when a fire station burns down. There's a, there's a new one too. And a, a hospital also burned down. Multiple, you know, thousands of homes have burned. It's been a, uh, it's been pretty crazy. And they, they don't have total containment of any of the fires yet. So it's been, uh, it's been pretty, pretty scary. So yeah, as a result, down here in the Bay Area, we're, we're, I'm about 70 or 90 miles south, probably about 70 miles south of where most of the fires are, and there's ash falling in places, there's still, it's really hazy, you can smell it outside that things are burning, so the, the air quality is super poor, like I wanted to go hiking uh, after I did jiu-jitsu today, but that's, that's really a no-go, I mean I really don't mind for myself, but I can't have, you know, my youngest daughter breathing, breathing in uh, particulates like this in the air, it's like, it's really bad. So that reminds me, there was a, back in the day when I lived in Escondido, California, it's down in Southern California, I lived in the hills, and it was, uh, it was kind of like out of the way, I, I liked it because it was out of the way, it was like in, you know, a lot of trees and foliage and stuff, and uh, one year a, a really bad fire came around, and it was, I was actually in Chicago at the time for a job, and I had to fly back because uh, the fires were so bad, and when I was flying in, like you could see all the smoke, it looked like something out of a fucking movie, it was crazy, and so we had to, we had to get evacuated, and at the time, uh, 
it was around, around the same time as the uh, the housing market crash, and my house was upside down. So, and I, I had insurance. So I was just praying that my my house would burn down. Like honestly, I was just like, I got you know, I, we, I got you know the dog, the family and stuff. We we got safe. Uh, my company at the time they they put us up in a hotel that was safe from the fires. And uh, I was just like, man, I don't really give like I don't give a fuck if this house burns down. Like I got all the stuff that I need. If it burns, great. I'll, we'll just get another house. You know, we'll get something that's you know more economical. But uh, yeah, it didn't burn down. And I'm actually, you know, I'm pretty sure when those fires happen that some people were in the same situation, they probably just burned their own houses down. They probably just let, let their, their roofs on fire and just let it burn. Just get out of their mortgages, man. That's pretty crazy. But uh, yeah, it's hard to, It's hard though when, you know, you, you buy a house and it's like, you know, $500,000 and then you look at the value and it's like $300,000 or less and you're still paying that, you know, $500,000 plus mortgage and you know you're you're deeper and deeper in debt and it's just like it gets to a, this crazy spiral which it's hard to get out of but luckily you know I, I got out of it the house didn't burn down by the way if i didn't mention that and uh i ended up going uh working overseas for you know a couple of years and then i ended up paying off all of my debt and then uh selling the house i just short sold it it ended up selling for like less than three hundred thousand. so but it was a short sale messed up my credit for a couple of years but it's my credit's actually great now so fixed everything um that was another thing that I, that I learned is that if you uh, if you pay off all your debt, that's really bad. I didn't know that until I did it. <laughs> so I paid off like every single, like I had zero debt. It was great. I was like, I don't owe money to nobody. And then all of a sudden uh, when I came back from Iraq for like the last time, actually it was from Qatar. I went from Iraq to Qatar and then I ended up moving back to America for good here in the Bay Area. And I wanted to buy the new uh, BMW S1000RR. It was a badass bike. It was back in 2010. And I went in to go finance it, and uh, they were like, "No, we, we can't. We can't finance this bike to you because you have really bad credit." It was like around the 500s or maybe, maybe even below that. But I was like, "Dude, I, I have like enough cash. To, I have enough money to buy this cash." And he's like, "Well, you might want to just go through another bank and then see if they can if they have options." So I went to a bank. And they couldn't really give me a loan either. The only way they could give me a loan at this time, even though I had money, even though I had money, right? This is what I had to do. This is how I rebuilt my credit. Is that I went to a bank and I basically did a secured loan with my own money. So basically I loaned myself money. I gave them 20 grand and they gave me a loan for 20 grand. And so what I did was, it's actually kind of smart, but sort of not. <laughs> but it's, this is just to build credit. If you need credit, this is how you can do it. If you have, you know, available liquid funds to do this. So... I gave this bank 20 grand, they loaned me 20 grand. So uh, I took that loan and then, I, I know you're probably wondering why the fuck would you, do, why, why would you do that, it doesn't make any sense. So basically what happens is I, I bought the bike with that 20 grand loan and then I started making payments on that loan. So this is how you can rebuild your credit is by making payments on that loan. Even though it was my own money, it's still on your credit as a loan. And so the cool thing about doing it this way even though you're basically borrowing from yourself, is that at the end of your loan, you get back the money that you basically lend yourself. <laughs> so it was it's kind of cool um, if you are really bad with money, which I, I kind of am. I'm getting better with it, but yeah, I basically just loaned myself money, and at the end, I got it all back. So, um, and then after, you know, while I did that to rebuild my credit, I got um, like a super low, uh, a super low uh, limit credit card. It was like, I think it was 500 bucks. <laughs> like it was super that's all I could get because my credit was so low and so I did that and I just I left like only I left like uh I spent maybe 200 bucks 
and then every month I would just pay off a little of, I would never pay it all the way off because what a lot of credit card companies like you to do they, they need to make money off of you somehow right and so the way that they make money off of you is through interest so if you just sit there and you don't have very good credit and you just use your credit card and you just pay it off like right away like before the interest occurs or accrues yeah whatever uh your credit score is probably not going to go up that much but if you leave like you know around 30 percent on that card and you pay that interest your credit's going to go up and so that's basically how i how i did mine i was never i never made a late payment i was always on time paying but i made sure that there was always some sort of money on that account so that the banks would get their money out of me and so and in return they gave me higher credit and then higher uh card limits so I kept getting, you know, every six months I would basically get higher and higher uh, limits on my card up until a certain point, obviously, right? And then eventually, you know, I got another high, a super high limit card, and then uh, that's how I basically fixed my credit. And you know, I went from like, like below a 500, and right now I have like almost a 750. So, and that was in a span of uh, probably four or five years I did that. So it, it takes some time, you know, depending on how, how aggressive you are with it. Um, you can do it, but um, if, if your credit's bad, it takes time to get all your bad shit off your credit too, so that's another reason why it takes some time for my credit to get uh, better. I did not plan on talking about uh, credit cards or anything like that on this podcast, so <laughs> that was, that was kind of weird. I just planned on talking about like father stuff, but yeah, the rest of the conversation, and actually along those same lines, like I haven't rode my motorcycle in a long time, and I'm going to start doing that pretty soon. I keep talking about it, but uh, I need to get back into riding. Uh, it's just like because right now I have to commute to work a little bit and it's it's brutal man just to go like 15 miles it takes me an hour and my uh, my girlfriend she has to commute too and it takes her like two hours to get uh, I think it's like right around 30 miles like one way that's like it's brutal and, and in California if you have a motorcycle you can lane split so it makes it cuts my commute basically in half so and I have like two bikes I just haven't used them because um, you know I got my daughter and I wasn't really commuting very much so but I'm going to get back to it. I just need to do some maintenance. Like, I need to replace both tires. And then I have, like, a whole bunch of recalls on my BMW. And I need an oil change. It's just, like, basic maintenance. So, I, the bike, I, I've had it for over seven years now. And it's got less than 10,000 miles on it. Which, in contrast, I have a VFR Interceptor. It's a 2000. And I put 30,000 miles on that bike in, in one year. <laughs> so, I rode a lot. And I used to not own a car and I would just ride to my heart's content. And I, I had this really interesting setup with with my job where uh, basically I couldn't work, but they had to pay me. <laughs> so what happened was, what had happened was, is that I had this gig where I was basically a contractor for the Navy and it was for a certain kind of storage. And so I was, uh, you know, as a contractor, I was, I was helping them out with a whole bunch of like projects and stuff, but they had this thing where they were thinking about changing storage vendors. And they were doing this thing called a, what's called a bake-off. And what they do is they compare either two vendors or multiple vendors together and run like a whole bunch of tests and see which one is better for their needs. So at that time, they didn't want to have a contractor on site to skew the, skew the results. However, they still had to pay uh, for my slot for the contract for other projects that they needed me for. So basically, I would come into work like once, maybe twice a week. Like, hey, you guys need me this week? They'd be like, nope. I'd be like, okay. I'll just go home and then go ride the twisties. <laughs> so, and it was down in uh, in Southern California where it was like prime riding. You know, I could I could ride 300 miles of straight twisties, you know, in a day, easy. Like way more, actually probably way more than that. I could put a, a thousand miles on the bike in a day. And, you know, and it was during like the time where, you know, at the, at the time my, my then wife was working and, you know, my daughter was in school. So, 
you know, it'd just be me hanging out. I would just go and ride, and you know, I'll ride a lot. And I got, I got really good at riding because uh, I had these two really good teachers. Um, both of them were older guys, and they both had a, a similar bike to mine. And they just they showed me the ropes, and I, I paid attention. And I went from being like the the newbie squid to you know the the ride leader. You know, and that was that was a really cool uh, point in my life. Because I was like the guy in front, because like. What we would do when we rode is that we would have like we would break if you've never done like a group ride um there's a couple ways you can do it but the way i like to do it is that when i was the the group leader is that i would break up the the rides into uh skill levels right so i would i would take charge of the what was called the quote-unquote fast group because i could ride fast in the twisties there'd be an intermediate group and there'd be a slow group or just a fast group and a slow group so and what that would do is it would drastically cut down on accidents because I have seen a lot of accidents in my day and it was basically due to people trying to keep up and it's terrible. Like I've had this happen to me where like I looked in the rearview mirror and somebody crashed trying to take the same line as me or just going in way too fast because they like trying to catch up to me. And it's like that's an awful feeling knowing that somebody crashed because they were just trying to keep up. So breaking, you know, skill levels down into groups drastically reduced that. Uh, and that was... That was really cool because it also gave people a chance. So say if you were uh, decided to be in a fast group one day and everybody was going too fast, like you wouldn't feel the pressure of trying to keep up, right? You could just slow down, uh, let the slow group catch up with you, and then ride with the slow group or the intermediate group. And then we'd always have checkpoints. So at the beginning of the ride, it'd be like, you know, when, when I was in SoCal, I'd be like, hey, we're going to meet at uh, the bottom of, was it the Montezuma grade? There was like a Mexican place where we would meet. And then... Um, coming back, we would meet at, uh, like another place to eat that was on the way back, you know, so we'd have like multiple stops or if, you know, actually first we would, uh, meet at the bottom of, uh, what was that? Palomar mountain. That would be like our first, like we would ride, meet up somewhere and then ride to the bottom of Palomar mountain. And then we would break up into groups, ride to the top of Palomar, stop up there at that. I forget that place. There's like a shop up there. We would stop there and then we'd break up into groups again, ride to the bottom, meet at the bottom. And then break up into groups again, and then meet at the bottom of Monitor Zimmergrade. So we do this like inter incrementally, and it was a really cool way for everybody to enjoy the ride instead of having people like way out of their, way out of their skill level. So if you're listening to this and you're a rider and you want to ride some twisties, like find a mentor, and then if the people are riding too fast for you, don't try to keep up. Just take it at your own pace, and don't ride over 75% uh, of your ability if you're like a new rider. Even actually, even if you're an experienced rider, don't ride to more than 75% of your abilities like or 75 or 80% like I would never ride on the streets more than 80% of my ability because you have to leave some room in there for error and like say if you're going on a corner and you're going 100% like as as fast as you can go and you're taking that corner and you've got your knee down and all of a sudden mid corner there's a fucking squirrel what are you gonna do you're already, you're already at 100% you're pushing the limit and that squirrel's in your line like you're gonna be kind of fucked you're gonna hit that squirrel and you're gonna lose your back end you're either gonna low side or high side so that's why I always say, you know, leave leave some percentages of your skills there so you can have room for errors because you, you, ne you never know if there's like dirt in the road or animal or crashed rider or, or, or anything, you know. So that's de riding that way has definitely helped me as well because there's been a few times like I've never wrecked a motorcycle. I've never even laid one down like at all. Um, and I've been riding for seven years. Like I said, I used to ride the twisties, you know, almost on the daily. Um, and that's basically what saved me. And I, and I was not a slow rider. I, I, I cannot ride a lot of people using a, a sport touring bike, um, you know, when they were riding sport bikes. 
are super sport bikes. And it was just all about ability, what I was comfortable with. Like, and I would, ne and I would never ride when I felt uncomfortable. And I've had guys that could outride me, and, you know, and that's no problem. I was still taking it at my pace. And what I would like to do is take it at my pace and then watch what they were doing from, you know, from the back and just see like what lines they were taking, you know, when they were positioning their body, stuff like that. I always, I'd always take mental notes about that and then integrate it into the way that I rode. And that's, that's how I got better, you know, riding a motorcycle. Um, and hopefully that'll help you if you uh, start to ride. And if you do, if you're a new rider or you think about riding, don't get a fucking 600 or some shit like that. Get a goddamn uh, 250 or 300, something that's quote unquote slow. These three, 250s and 300s, they're still way faster than cars. So just keep that in mind when you buy one. So don't think that, oh, I don't want to get it, it's too slow. Well, the great thing about a 250 or a 300, um, if you think about a sport bike, is that you can make mistakes in that bike. And when I, when I say mistakes, like you have to learn throttle control, that's super important. Uh, and on a 250 or a 300, if you're wide open throttle, um, you're probably not gonna do a wheelie and like fucking crash if you're at a stoplight. Like if you, if you mess up that, that clutch action and you like over rev and you let go of that clutch, you just dump it, um, you're probably not gonna crash. You're gonna like do a little wheelie, but it's gonna come down pretty quick. So, and that's happened to me before on a bigger bike. Um, yeah, sorry, I, there was a lady I didn't see my blind spot. Anyway, so yeah, just get the 250 or 300. You're probably gonna, you know, get another bike within a year or two, but you're way better off uh, learning on that bike than learning on a, on a 600 or something larger because there's just no room for mistakes. They're, they're too light, they're too fast, and it's just, it's just too much bike for most people, you know? And you're not gonna learn how to, you're not gonna learn how to properly ride with something with that much power because Honestly, that kind of power is really intimidating when you first, you know, get on it. When I went from a from a 250 to an 800, that was like a big learning curve for me. And then when I went from 800 to my leader bike, uh, that was a huge learning curve because my uh, my leader bike can can do zero to 60 in like 2.6 seconds. It could do I can do 90 90 what 93 98 miles per hour in first fucking gear. You know, I mean that's ridiculous. That that's way that's way faster than what I need. And that, it took me a while to learn how to like really tame that and learn and relearn throttle control. You know, I, I can't use the same throttle control that I use on an 800 uh, that I use on a on a leader bike because it's just the response is way too fast and it's got way too much power. So um, yeah. So anyway, those are some tips about riding. That was an interesting conversation, interesting podcast. So yeah, this one's just going to be called uh, Cronus Does, not uh, not the Jits Cast. I talked about very little about jujitsu. So uh, this is the like I said before a few times like. I can talk about more stuff than just jujitsu, so this will be one of those episodes. So, hope you guys like this episode. Uh, if you like what you're seeing, uh, smash that like button, hit that subscribe button, uh, and yeah, that's it. Cronus, I'm out of here.